In my last episode, just after my interview with Chris Burge, I briefly mentioned something called the Mandela Effect. And as I do more research focusing solely on the events of the morning of September 5th, 1982, I'm beginning to think that this is something very much at play. Just in case you're not familiar with that term, what it is is collective false memory. The term Mandela Effect was coined in 2010 in reference to a false memory that was reportedly shared by thousands of the death and funeral in the 1980s of the South African leader Nelson Mandela. Despite this shared false memory, Nelson Mandela was in prison throughout the 1980s, and he was very much alive. He went on to become the first president of South Africa in 1994, and he passed away in 2013. So this is generally the term people use whenever there's a wide-spanning collective false memory of something. For our purposes, an even more accurate term might be misinformation effect. That's false memories caused by an exposure to misleading information after an event took place. And then that affects the recall of the event. So let's apply that principle to all the reports we've heard over the years on the events that happened on the morning that Johnny Gosh disappeared, the early morning hours of September 5th, 1982. What I have realized is that there are a great deal of alleged events from that morning that thousands of us who have followed the Johnny Gosh case, mind you, that's thousands of us who were never there, have embedded as fact into our minds. We've heard the same reports so many times, played it out so many times in our mind, that it is sort of like a memory. The problem is there are things that we've accepted as fact in the timeline based on various reports that we've heard and read, but when you think them through comprehensively, they don't actually make sense. They don't make sense because one, we have an actual eyewitness who saw Johnny that morning telling us these events didn't happen. And two, on a much more circumstantial level, there are events that couldn't have happened as remembered when you look at them logistically. And I have to say, I'm very grateful to people like Yellowbag and Chris Burge who have entrusted me to listen to their perspectives and for coming forward with their ideas on these events that far differ from the series of events in the Johnny Gosh timeline that we've all heard over the years in books, in articles, in news reports, and in documentaries. From the very beginning, my intention has been to find out what really happened to Johnny, not make it into another sensationalized story. And that's where I have to say shame on me for accepting the official timeline without any hesitation. So in today's episode, my goal is to go back and remedy that. I had said previously that for this episode, I was going to go through and create a new timeline with the old newspaper reports, but I'm going to save that for the next episode. Today, I'm going to walk you through the official report of the morning of Johnny Gosh's kidnapping, and I'd like us to try and figure out what is true versus what is probably not true. I also have an interview with someone that we've never heard from before. This is episode 17 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio.
as always, I want to reiterate that I do not claim any of my own speculations as fact, nor do I necessarily discount anyone else's thoughts on the Johnny Gosh timeline. As I mentioned in my last few episodes, let's just take everything in the timeline that I've explained to you so far prior to when Paul Benassi became involved in the case, and let's put a pin in it for now. Let's reevaluate the series of events that took place strictly on the morning of Johnny's disappearance, taking into account what we've heard recently about Wilbur Milhouse, Sam Soda, and the perspective given to us by Chris Burge. So... Let's start at the beginning, and let's think of every detail that we can along the way in that specific set of circumstances. So if we look at the official story of that morning, as it had always been reported, Johnny left his house that morning before 6 a.m. dragging his red wagon and with his mini dachshund Gretchen alongside of him. His house was on 45th Street, which is a cul-de-sac. So he cut through the back, going across a neighbor's backyard, through the churchyard, up to Ashworth Road. So pause for a second. This would be happening somewhere between 5.30 and 6 a.m. I just googled the time of sunrise on that day, and it says that in West Des Moines, Iowa, on September 5th, 1982, sunrise was at 6.45 a.m. So it's still pitch dark at the time Johnny left the house. However, the report has Johnny walking through the backyards, and according to Chris Burge, he would have had to walk through the churchyard where there was an empty creek bed that he would have to walk through and a hill that goes down and then up again before he reaches the sidewalk. So really, try to imagine that. Pitch dark, dragging a wagon, and bringing a mini dachshund alongside of you, going through backyards, through a creek bed, and up a hill, and all within just a few minutes. So, moving on, when Johnny gets to Ashworth Road, he is approached by a man in a blue Ford Fairmont. The man stops, goes into reverse for a minute to talk to Johnny, and at this point in the report, Mike Seskis is at the corner of Ashworth Road and 42nd Street, collecting his papers, and John Rossi, who lived at Ashworth and 42nd, is outside at that corner as well. Okay, pause. So, first of all, if you were the person driving the Ford Fairmont, and this was an organized kidnapping... How would you be able to calculate that Johnny would be coming out onto Ashworth Road right at that moment? Even if you knew that that's where he would be coming out from, how could you be able to time it? You wouldn't even really be able to say, park at a corner with your lights off and stake him out. Because then there would be witnesses saying, hey, that car was sitting parked on Ashworth Road until Johnny Gosh came out and then he drove up to him. The other thing is, I'm looking at a bird's eye view of a map of this area on Google Earth, and these are not small blocks. I'm looking at a still image from the documentary Who Took Johnny right now, and the distance between where Johnny is supposed to be standing on Ashworth talking to this guy and the corner is about the length of three houses. And then it's the corner on the other side of the street where Mike Seskis is collecting his papers and John Rossi is standing in his front yard. So again, it's dark out. How would either Mike Seskis or John Rossi be able to get a good look at the driver, at least at this point? So, let's continue. So at this point, the Ford Fairmont leaves, heads west, down Ashworth Road. Johnny continues onto the corner of Ashworth and 42nd. Now, according to the documentary, the same car comes back, approaching from the east. In other words, he left in one direction, and then in just a few minutes, he came back from the opposite direction, asking for directions again. So granted, we don't know how much time is supposed to have passed in between when the car first took off and when it reappeared again, but even if it were up to 10 minutes, how would he be able to drive off, 
turn, drive all the way around one of these long blocks and reappear again without anyone else in the neighborhood noticing him. I'd like to play you a clip right now from Who Took Johnny, describing what immediately followed after this. The first voice you will hear is John Rossi, describing the man as he saw him in the Ford Fairmont. I think I told the police he looked like he was mad about something. He wasn't drunk, but he looked like he's uh, been drinking a lot of caffeine, you know, that kind of thing. Not sleepy. <laughs> well, he wasn't sleepy. He was, looked like he was, on, you know, ready to go. <laughs> That's kind of odd at 6 o'clock in the morning. All of a sudden, the witness that was sitting on the corner saw a tall man come out from between two houses and follow my son. Mike saw an individual step from the curb onto 42nd and travel towards John Gosh. The next two people that see him are two juvenile newspaper carriers that say, Hi, Johnny. He says, Hi. They proceeded to where the newspapers have been dropped. At about this time, P.J. Smith reported hearing a car door, and upon sitting up in bed, he observed a silver and black Ford Fairmont start up from the area where John Gosh was last seen and made a left turn after rolling through the stop sign without stopping. Okay, so a few things. Generally, when we talk about the blue Ford Fairmont seen on Ashworth Road, we say, well, witnesses saw this or witnesses reported that. But there weren't abundant witnesses on Ashworth Road. There were two. There was John Rossi and there was Mike Seskis. And let's talk about what Chris Burge told me in my last episode. According to Chris, all of this is bunk. Chris lived on Marcourt Lane, and he saw Johnny that morning crossing in front of his driveway. That's the complete opposite route from what the official report says, and it is the most simple way to go. And keep in mind, too, Chris did say that Johnny's pickup spot for his papers was not at 42nd and Ashworth. It was at 42nd and Marcourt. In one of Chris's emails to me, he shared an exchange that he had with Kevin Bozen through Facebook. Kevin and his brother Mark were the two paper boys described as walking up 42nd Street. So this is Kevin relaying what he saw to Chris. Quote, Hey Chris, we got our papers at 42nd and Ashworth. Walking from our house to the corner, Mark and I did see Johnny. He was in the location that he was taken on Marcourt. After we got our papers, we walked back and west on Marcourt. This time when we had passed, he was gone. We delivered papers at those townhomes on Woodland. Kevin. And then he has another message. Quote, We did not see Johnny on the corner of Ashworth. He had already gotten his papers and was starting to deliver. We hadn't seen anyone getting papers that morning. I don't remember John Rossi. I never heard that he or anyone witnessed anything that morning. I am not sure the interview with John Rossi was factual. End quote. So Johnny did not pass by the Bozen brothers as they were all walking on 42nd Street. Johnny was never seen walking on 42nd Street. Kevin Bozen, like Chris, saw Johnny in the spot where he was taken at 42nd and Marcourt. I want to replay for you something that you might have missed in that clip from just now. Admittedly, I missed it the first couple of times I saw this movie. This is in reference to when P.J. Smith saw the Ford Fairmont on Marcourt Lane. At about this time, P.J. Smith reported hearing a car door and upon sitting up in bed, he observed a silver and black Ford Fairmont start up from the area where John Gosh was last seen and made a left turn after rolling through the stop sign without stopping. Silver and black as he saw it, not blue. 
I'm going to throw a theory out there. This is just my speculation, but I'd like you to just kind of consider this. I don't think the Ford Fairmont seen on Ashworth and the one seen on Marcourt Lane were the same car. Because aside from just color, think of this logistically. For that to have been the same car, for it to have been headed west on Marcourt about to approach Johnny again, and again, this is going by Google Earth, the car would have had to either go down Ashworth Road again, turn right onto Woodland Park Drive, then turn right again onto Marcourt Lane. Or, if he had gone down 42nd Street, he would have to go even further, go past Francrest Circle, which is another cul-de-sac, keep going, turn left onto Woodland Avenue, keep going, turn left onto Woodland Park Drive, and then take another left onto Marcourt Lane. So for one thing, what person about to snatch a kid is going to go driving all through a quiet West Des Moines neighborhood at six in the morning, letting anyone who might be getting up at that time to notice? I also want to play for you now a clip that I've played for you before of Johnny's dad, John Sr., in the video, America's MIA Children. It was sometime in August of the year that Johnny was kidnapped. Uh when uh, a neighbor lady saw this car sitting there with California plates on it, taking pictures of many different things, but uh, Johnny was on his paper out at the same time, and uh, apparently she was shooting pictures, or, you know, she was pointing the, the camera at him, whether she took the picture or not, we presume she was, and the lady called the police department about it. They never, ever checked it out, then they lost the license plate number. The lady had wrote it down, after this ordeal, uh, she didn't have a license plate number anymore either. And uh, then roughly a month later, on September 5th, 1982, that's when Johnny uh, was kidnapped on his paper route. And uh, the people that were there that morning at the corner said that the only thing they saw in this guy's car was a brown manila envelope laying on the front seat. Whether it was a picture, whether it was a work order to kidnapping or whatever it was. Uh, we presume it would probably both. So here's another thing that's got me reevaluating everything. What brown manila envelope? Who reported seeing that? My question is, who in law enforcement or what private investigator chose to insert a report of a brown manila envelope into the story? So you see what I'm getting at when I talk about misinformation and how it snowballs and how certain details become accepted as truth even when their origin is shaky to begin with. Over the weekend, I got to talk to Matt Seskis. He's Mike's younger brother. Matt was 10 years old at the time that Johnny disappeared, and though he wasn't there to witness anything that morning, I wanted to see if he could talk a bit about his brother's take on things. Hi, this is Matt. Hi, this is Sarah. Hey, Sarah, how are you? Good. Yeah, sorry I called you a little early. I thought um I I thought maybe we could bang it out a little bit earlier. So, yeah. Oh, no problem. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, I just have a couple of questions like I guess um my first one, um I I'm recording this right now. So, I was wondering if you could just tell everybody what is your connection to the Johnny Gosh story. I know that your brother, Mike, is mentioned in the initial police report, yes? That's correct. Yeah, I'm I'm the brother of Mike Seskis, who um, he's listed in the police report because he also delivered papers on a paper route that was near where Johnny Gosh delivered papers and was abducted. Okay, and so I guess I'm wondering, 
because I talked to Chris Burge just uh, last week, and he says that the official story is wrong, that Johnny couldn't have walked all the way up to Ashworth Road and turned down 42nd Street because he saw him walk the opposite way uh, on Marquardt Lane. So I'm wondering, did your brother ever tell you what exactly he saw or did he ever talk about it? You know, a lot of the information I knew about it was secondhand and and because it's been so many years ago, I don't recall uh, a lot of the details. Um, I actually, and I, I also texted or, or messaged with Chris Berg, and I, and from my recollection, I thought that uh, the the Netflix documentary was a accurate representation. However, again, I said I was I I heard of this the 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 details of the story uh, from whatever I saw on the news, some bits and that we talked about um, in my family because we were, you know, we were questioned by the police, the FBI, uh, not me personally. I just remember hearing my parents telling me that, you know, they had conversations with the Western Wind, the police department, uh, believe it, FBI as well. Uh, and so uh, the details of what occurred, uh, I can't really, you know, I can't really comment on if they're, if they're true or not. Um, but again, based on my uh, recollection, um, and I don't, re again, I don't remember the street names, but mm -hmm. just that, um, you know, my brother Mike, what I recall, saw him, and I believe he went around the block, he came back for some reason, and when he came back, he, he didn't see him. And okay. Uh, uh, the other thing too, though, um, the same man that approached, or well, that my brother had said uh, that he spec, you know, he believes that that the man in a in a blue car, I believe, yeah, uh, who is suspected of um, of kidnapping Johnny Gosh, he actually approached my brother Mike as well. And again, I don't the details are foggy, mm -hmm. but. Um, that's kind of why, again, bits and pieces that I've heard, um, I'm I'm a firm believer that whoever that man was, uh, was the man who kidnapped Johnny Gosh. And for, you know, for whatever reason, it, you know, it could have been my brother. He, for some reason, walked away from him. Uh, he, mm -hmm. he, he didn't interact with the man. And uh, that, I think you know, prevented him from being abducted. The other possibility, again, this is just speculation, that mm -hmm. my brother was a little bit older than Johnny Gosh, so perhaps this man, you know, you know, realized that he was a little bit more mature, a little bit older, and chose not to select him as his victim and just drove on and found Johnny Gosh. Uh, now, back to your, I guess your original question is if you walked all the way Ashworth Road or not, and I you know, it didn't seem like uh, that far of a distance. Uh, I think it's possible, but again, that's not that's just based on my opinion. Yeah. And and again, the details uh, I can't really recall. Okay, and and also too, Chris had mentioned to me that um, in his in one of Chris's first emails to me, he said that he didn't know who Mike Seskis was. He, I think his. Um, exact quote in his email was something like, 
I don't know, and no, none of my friends know who Mike Seskis is. I don't think he went to our school. So, um, is there? Did did, he, did Mike go to a different school? Is that? I mean, how how is it possible that um, nobody knew who he was? Chris seems to think that nobody in the neighborhood knew who Mike was. Well, and that, and that's a simple explanation. Um, uh, from again, from my conversations with Chris, and and I. I Chris Berg, uh, I didn't even know he was involved in the Johnny Gosh case as well. Then again, I was not actively involved in it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I thought Chris Berg was the same grade as me. And from our discussions, he was actually a grade higher than me in Valley High School. But I do recognize his name, mm-hmm. but not, not because of anything associated with the Johnny Gosh case. I actually never knew he was uh, involved. Uh, or I shouldn't say involved, but um, he was he delivered papers as well in the in the neighborhood. Um, but I recognize his name from Valley High School. My brother Mike did go to Valley High School as well, but graduated um, you know four years ahead of Chris and I. So that may be uh, that's one of the reasons why um, you know he was older than Chris and Johnny. And okay. so they, they didn't know of him. He was already at Valley High School at the time, I believe. And they were still uh, at the junior high school or even uh, see, I probably would have been elementary, junior high. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why they didn't know of him. The second reason is because we actually lived uh, oh, at, least, at least two or three miles from Ashworth Road. So we didn't live in that. My brother Mike didn't live in that same neighborhood that, uh, and from, again, from what I understand, Chris and Johnny lived in the same neighborhood. That's how they knew of each other. And the reason they didn't know of my brother Mike is because, one, they didn't, they weren't the same school. They were quite a few years apart. And secondly, we lived in a, a neighborhood that was farther away from, from that, that neighborhood. Okay. So I guess my next question would be then, did, um, did Mike really know Johnny personally? Like if, um, if he were, like, if he were to see him in passing, would he have like known that that's Johnny or that, I guess I'm wondering when he saw him the morning that he disappeared, did he mm. know for a fact that that was Johnny Gosh that he saw, like come up to the corner? Well, and, and, and that too, I think, um, and obviously, he, you know, my brother Mike would be better to to respond to that. But I, again, based on what information I do know, um, and a little bit of me speculating is that because they were not of the, you know, didn't live in the same neighborhood, were not going to the same school, um, only knew of each other as another paper route, paper boy in the in the neighborhood. So. You know, they would just see each other morning after morning, uh, just just in passing. And if I and I actually had a paper route in um, in West Des Moines at the same time. I was you know I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I from what I remember, the the West Des Moines was it called the West Des Moines Tribune, I think, or whatever the newspaper was at the time. See, I mm-hmm. can't even remember the newspaper name. Yeah. Uh, for for the neighborhoods that. Uh, they delivered papers to where the where the paper boys would collect the papers was like a central location for each neighborhoods in the vicinity. 
so that that possibly was the only way they interacted or even knew of each other is that they both had to go to the same location to collect their papers, count them, you know, fold them, right. and then go do their route. Because uh, I can recall uh, when I had my paper route, I had the same situation, and I've met other other people that are other paper boys that would we be the same location to collect our papers and then do our routes. Um, I don't remember any of those names, but um, I think that's that's quite a bit different situation. When one of the paper boys is abducted, mm-hmm. that that name, Johnny Gosh, is ingrained in my mind forever. I don't think I'll ever forget that name. Uh, and then a few years later, Eugene Martin is... Right. I, I will just... I will never forget those names, and because it touched so close to home. I was a paper boy as well. My brother was a paper paper boy, and probably the biggest reason it touches so close to home is that, you know, my brother lit, delivered papers in the same or surrounding neighborhood next to Johnny Gosh, and it it just it could have easily been my brother Mike and or yeah. Chris, um, and so that's it's. Uh, pretty sensitive subject well yeah and i i totally get that because and it it, well i i guess another thing i'm wondering too is um you had mentioned just a second ago that your brother mike had been approached by somebody in a blue car and did, did he ever talk about that did he ever like um give a description of what that person looked like that it could have been possibly the same car that approached johnny Oh, absolutely. And again, um, I, uh, there, and there was actually, and then I don't, again, this is what I refreshed my memory from the, the documentary, but there was also a, a resident who was out and on his property that morning. And I, yeah. I, I, that's, I recall my brother, Mike, you know, hearing discussion of him saying that, uh, that gentleman was out and that gentleman also saw, uh, Johnny that morning. I don't know if that gentleman saw the blue car or not, but um, um, but the other thing is, I believe, and unless anyone else gave a description of the man that he talked to, the the profile picture is a description uh, that my brother Mike partially, you know, he contributed to that. He Mm -hmm. gave a description of the vehicle, of the man, as best as he could recall. And that was, um, you know, the kind of the the West Des Moines police and the FBI's uh, biggest lead. So, so I'm wondering too. Then, when your brother gave the description, um, was he giving a description of the person who approached him, or was he giving a description of the person he saw approaching Johnny? Well, and. Really both, because again, if I recall, he he mentioned that the man approached him and asked him, and I, I don't even remember what he asked him. Uh, something you know, simple like uh, or w- some directions for uh, to find a house. So, mm-hmm. You know, you know where this address is located. I believe he asked for directions. Uh, and is the part I don't recall, and again, that my my brother Mike would would be best to to respond to is if if he you know he he did I do remember him saying the man approached him but I don't recall if he you know I witnessed the man approaching Johnny as well if I recall he he does 
but again, it's uh, secondhand information that I don't know the completely accurate. Right. And um and and the the man that you mentioned was outside. I think that would be John Rossi, and he's interviewed in the documentary. And um, I've been wondering about John Rossi myself because um that's another thing that Chris Burge told me is that he didn't know John Rossi, and none of his friends knew John Rossi. So so with that, I'm kind of wondering was John Rossi totally clear on who Johnny was? Like, maybe, is it possible some other boy came up to the corner that morning and he just thought it was Johnny? And I guess that's kind of what I'm wondering. Like, if if Mike didn't know him, know Johnny too well, and if John Rossi maybe wasn't clear on which boy was which, um, is it possible it was some other boy and they both just kind of assumed that was Johnny? Um, I guess that's kind of what I'm wondering because I don't know if with paper routes, uh, do they change pickup spots ever? Because as Chris tells me, Johnny's pickup spot was always at 42nd and Marcourt, not at Ashworth. So I don't oh. know if they would have, if if that's possible that they would have seen Johnny up there. Oh, that's a good point. I mean, I, I suppose, um, again, I'm just, responding on uh, what I recall and what, um, you know, what I remember from delivering papers. Right. And I suppose it's possible that they could arrange with uh, the West Des Moines Tribune to, you know, have another location for his drop-off, or if, if that's what, how it was set up anyway. Um, you, you know, if they there was that, that route was just um, part of the next route over and so his were delivered somewhere else um but in response to you know chris's not knowing john rossi well i'm not surprised i mean a teenage boy and i you know i was delivering papers at the same time i didn't really get to know my customers for one most of them were asleep when i was delivering so you right. don't really know your your customers the other thing is I did get to know some of them, but only because as one of the one of the requirements as a paper boy was to go collect the money for uh, the paper routes. However, some people preferred to mail their payments in, and so you may not ever get to meet those customers. So I think that might that may explain why one of the reasons why. And I, again, if Chris, you know, he would absolutely have to answer his own opinion, but. Uh, why he, you know, why he didn't know John Rossi, but I don't, I don't think that's too unusual because, again, I didn't know a lot of my customers either. Never saw them, never met them, um, be because they were asleep, and I didn't ever have to go collect from them because they would mail their payments in. Okay, and and also too about um, just getting back to what Mike could have actually seen that morning. Did he ever talk about? seeing a tall man walk out from between two houses and start to follow Johnny on the sidewalk? That I don't remember. I, that, I don't believe that. I don't believe my brother Mike ever saw that. Okay. Um, but again, I don't remember completely. From Based on my memories, um, it, it kind of all... It all goes back to uh, the the man in the blue car. That okay. And it, and again, to me, again, just my opinion. It just seems um, 
it seems like that was the the that was the main focus. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm not aware of, of. I don't recall of any any tall man uh, come approaching Johnny in in between houses. So. You know, if him, I know that he was a little older than the rest of you, but I'm kind of wondering him still being so young at the time, if maybe he was, uh, maybe he was a little bit coerced into um, following along just with the the timeline that they sort of they sort of already mapped out and just kind of like. You know, you know how you know how a lot of times law enforcement does that. They kind of have their own narrative, and they kind of like try to push witnesses along a little bit. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm. This is pure spec speculation on my part, but I guess I'm just kind of wondering if maybe a little bit of that was at play too. Well, and I, I, I can't. Yeah, I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Uh, against that as a theory that I completely under that that makes sense to me too now as far as if that occurred that I don't know but the one one other thing I will mention and I since you had contacted me I was trying to you know rack my brain uh to try to remember what I knew and I actually I tried to avoid googling on you know the internet for information because I didn't want to be I didn't want to be uh, influenced by news yeah. reports that have been out there. I just wanted to try to strictly go off of my memory. Um, but I, and I'm, and again, Mike would be a better re person to respond on that. But one thing I do recall, and this is from conversations with my mom and dad, is that um, rightfully so, Noreen Gosh uh, got very active in the search for Johnny. Mm -hmm. And from my parents my interpretation of what my parents told me is that the it didn't seem like the West Des Moines Police Department um, were took it as actively initially I think um, you know it took Noreen to continuously contact them to actually make them you know to make them do anything take any action yeah it, it, yeah, I think there was a sort of an assumption back then that um, most missing kids were runaways, and that was sort of uh, the attitude is that it's like, oh, he'll he'll show up, he'll you know something like that, you know. Right, and actually, that's exactly what I was just going to say is that um, from what my my remember hearing from my parents is that the West Des Police Department thought that yeah, he was just he was just a runaway. And so they didn't take it very seriously initially, and um, and so again, I'm not saying that it it happened, but it's not surprising that you know perhaps the West Des Moines police sort of laid out what you know what was what occurred in their opinion, and just you know con convinced Mike to go along with it. I yeah. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's not out of the question. I'm, you know, the police department just wanted to probably put that case to bed and and be over with it um, until they realized that, you know, he wasn't coming back home, and then then they sort of took uh, took it seriously. And but by then it was perhaps too late. It is very important to remember something else that Chris mentioned a number of times. Johnny was just gone. His wagon was completely undisturbed. 
It was sitting perfectly straight in the sidewalk with the papers placed inside still in their brown wrapping. You can find reports online and occasionally an interview on YouTube of Noreen Gosh saying that Johnny was seen sitting on the wagon or slumped over the wagon as if he was sick. But the thing is, there are no witnesses who claim that. You can also find reports claiming that Johnny may have been shot with a taser of some sort. Well, the thing is, I don't know when tasers first became available for the public to purchase, but even that part aside, say this person did have a taser. Getting shot by one is not a subtle thing. It's not like in the movies where they freeze in place and just fall over. If Johnny had been shot by a taser, he would have let out a scream and he would have been flailing on the ground. The whole neighborhood would have known if he was shot by a taser. The other idea is, well, maybe it was a tranquilizer. That is also not a subtle thing, nor is it instantaneous. He would have been able to scream, and it likely would have made him violently sick at first. It would take several minutes to actually subdue the victim. Likely what happened is... Someone drove up to Johnny on Marcourt Lane and called him over to the car. It may have been someone he knew, so he left the wagon on the sidewalk, walked up to the car. So maybe this person asked him to get in the front seat. Maybe they asked him to look at a map or something. Maybe it was someone who worked at the register and said something along the lines of, Hey Johnny, we have to run over to the register real quick. Can you get in? It is likely that it was just that simple. I think someone out there knows exactly who was driving that car on Marcourt Lane that morning. So that's what I would like to try to piece together. We've already named a number of people from that time who are up to shady things. Wilbur Milhouse right at the top of that list. Frank Sikora, who was arrested for sexual abuse. Sam Soda, who created Stolen Children are reported every day, where he showed actual child pornography at his conferences and later inserted himself into the Johnny Gosh case as a private investigator. And now we've got a new person to add. This person, Fred, who worked at the mall that Chris had mentioned to me. And we're going to talk about him more in my next episode, because that is when I will be going through the old newspaper clippings. And hopefully we can figure out what the hell was going on with some of these guys in and around Des Moines at the time. Until then, you can always get in touch with me. I am still playing catch up with emails, and I will respond as soon as I can. That email is fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet me at Sarah E. Dimio. Faded Out is on Facebook at facebook.com slash faded out podcast. We do also have a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. Thank you for joining me for episode 17. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time.